Hi, my name is Alex Williams, founder of The New Stack, and you're listening to The New Stack Analyst Podcast, a show about application, development, and management at scale. Thanks for joining us. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud-native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud-native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Well, hello, everybody. It is pancake breakfast time. Thanks to Palo Alto Networks for making this pancake breakfast possible from KubeCon Boston, the North America show. We are all here. We are ready to go. Lynn's got her syrup. I've got my pancakes. Joe has his Mountain Dew from the West Virginia Bureau of the New Stack. And look at that. (laughs) Everyone has their pancakes. This is terrific. So excited for our breakfast this morning. I want to thank everyone for uh, making this possible. I'm going to have a quick pancake before we get started. Let me see here. Hmm. Let me just take a little bite. Hey, Lynn, uh, could you pass the syrup, please? Enjoy. Oh, thank you very much for the syrup there. We always say in pancake land, there is a little bit of a particle physics going on. How about you, Rich? What do you have there? This is kind of a fun little Scandinavian thing. So uh, you take your pancakes, do a little sour cream, and then I have orange marmalade, or you can do any kind of jam you would like on it. But uh, it's a very tasty, almost savory pancake. Still just a tiny bit sweet. It's pretty awesome. Yum, yum. And, and Joe, what have you got? What do you got, Joe, there? Oh, I'm just sticking with the Mountain Dew. I go straight to the Mountain Dew in the morning, first thing. <laughs> in the morning. Good deal. Good deal. Good deal. So good. So let's get started with our breakfast. We have our, I'm going to take a quick bite before we get going though, just because, you know, let's just, it's for good one, you know, for everyone out there. I hope people out in Pancake Land are, oh, that's delicious. Mm, 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 mm. So our topic for today is about identity and access management. When I am hurts, we're easing the pain with pancakes. We have Nathaniel Quist from um, Palo Alto Networks, Joe from the Newstack, Lynn Sun from the ICO team at IBM. So thank you so much for your participation here. I wanna just get started, you know, think looking at the context for the world that we're in right now. And we're facing more complexities than we ever have before. Developers have so many choices, especially the ones who are working on backend infrastructure. And they're trying to think about all these different configurations, all this different interoperability. The amount of code that people are producing is is considerable. The dependencies, the vulnerabilities that we see starting to surface are significant as attack services grow and they become more widespread. So. Joe, the amount of code developer writes is so much more than five to 10 years ago. I'm wondering about your own coverage from then and, you know, and how you think about APIs and dependencies 
you know, where does that leave, leave identity and access management? I mean, from your from your perspective and covering this space for so long. Linus Torvalds once allegedly said that uh, every problem with Linux is at its heart a permissions problem. And that's what we're talking about here. Uh, originally, you know, developers never thought about, uh, developers never thought about the users of, well, the, the rights of the users who are using their applications. Identity management is at heart, it's not exactly a security thing either. It's not a developer problem, or it wasn't a developer problem. It wasn't a security problem. It really almost was a network problem. If a certain individual or a certain process wants to uh, access another process or a resource over line, over online, then uh, then you have to have the permissions in place to meet all the policy requirements about who can ask and not ask uh, ask uh, 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 for these particular resources. And this is, this is an entirely new problem uh, with distributed computing on the on a massive and widespread scale. So it, it's an entirely new problem, and there are good solutions out there. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into OPA pretty shortly. But it's almost a mindset of number one, who can figure out what to do, and uh, and then how to go about and doing it. it. It's it's a totally new issue, or relatively new issue, anyway. I want to turn though next to Nathaniel and get an idea about this complexity and thinking about the actors who are attacking and. What are they targeting? Who are they targeting? What's the connection between config management and identity, for instance, in Kubernetes? Yeah, most certainly. Um, it, it's a great uh, kind of topic. Um, so within Palo Alto, we do a, a, a cloud threat report, and we usually release it every six months. So one in the first half of the year and one in the second half of the year. This last one that we released was entirely about identity and kind of some of those aspects that we look at within the cloud infrastructure as far as how identity is, is uh, misconfigured or how it's scaled across multiple environments. As uh, organizations build into the cloud, they start building environments and that environment, um, you know, by using things like infrastructure as code templates or things of that, of that nature can scale um, really quickly, dynamically, um, and that just adds more complexity on top and top and top of every single layer. With every new environment that an organization builds, if there is a misconfiguration within an identity, um, you know, resource or something of that nature, it can scale across a lot of different organizations. We have found that, that there are particular uh, cloud environments. Uh, we found that 23% of organizations are experiencing some sort, some form of crypto mining operation with their within their environment. Um, and within those particular groups that are targeting that, so the actual actors that are, are performing the crypto uh, jacking in those cloud environments, they are specifically targeting those, uh, you know, cloud service provider credentials, the, uh, you know, if you will, the AWS access ID and the secret keys that are stored on each one of those particular cloud endpoints. Um, so anything that is scalable or if those particular IDs um, those credentials are actually put into those cloud endpoints. You know, if an attacker was able to compromise that particular system, um, then they would have access to those uh, credentials that were stored on that on that endpoint. Um, and then, with it just being template, you know, templatized, um, just makes it a whole lot easier for them to uh, not just gain access to the system, but then you know, take a step farther and gain access to the actual environment itself. Uh, you know, 
that is a thing that, that we actually are seeing happening. Well, Lynn, I'm curious on your perspective so far on what we're just talking about that, you know, with this ever increasing complexity, you know, how is this reflected in service mesh environments, which you work with so closely and how to manage identity and access management? I, this has been one of the topics of interest that I've had as we've looked at a service mesh and the role it plays. Yeah, so before I get to service mesh, I want to take a second from my perspective on how this is not so easy with Kubernetes. Um, so as we all know, developers are moving their applications to Kubernetes. They are looking at microservices as the architecture. So Kubernetes provides service account as identity for services, and you could um, use like the default uh, service account come with your namespace or optionally you can use specific service account within the namespace but these service accounts they are not really the identity for the user they're really the identities associated um with the service and the parts that's backing up the service to that well you can assign like the cluster or a row or binding to allow you to have access, allow your service to have access to Kubernetes resources and APIs. So these are not service centric. Um, it's really hard for a user, a service owner who develops services and run the services on Kubernetes to say, you know what, I want to control who has access to my service and I want to config uh, what are the services I'm allowed to access. And I don't really just want to control that simply at the service level because I would maybe also want to have even more restrained access, right? I want, I would only want to allow this particular service to access me maybe only on slash hello as a pass. Maybe they can only do get operation they can't really do post operation so these are some of the challenges we're trying to solve and provide it a so much easy experience for user on service mesh well they um well service mesh would provide authentication and authorization policies that's more service oriented and they can leverage uh, layer 7 data to make intelligent decisions on that layer seven data to make intelligent decisions. And how is that in context in comparison to traditional practices people have used? This is a real shift, isn't it? Definitely a real shift, yeah. So if you look at Kubernetes uh, without service mesh, I mean, Kubernetes has like, um service account we talk about right typically people use uh, network policies to kind of config mm -hmm. what's allowed to access and most recently i believe uh, with network policy you can specify part selector so you could potentially say this network policy is from this particular part with this selector to the particular destination however there are um, some limitations with network policy. Um, first of all, it's not TLS based, so the traffic 
is not necessarily secured. Um, and network policy typically is more environmental specific. That's more tied to like your IP, your network. So as your services are moved from one Kubernetes to the other Kubernetes, you might have to rewrite a good portion of the network policy. So these challenges are are kind of eliminated in the world of service mesh as we elevate from, um, you know, like pod and network centric to the service centric approach uh, with, uh, with security policies. Yeah, uh, Lynn, do you find that it's the application developer that about this or is it more, uh, does it all fall on the Kubernetes uh, operations group? So honestly, for me, you know, application developer have so much to worry about. I mean, because their focus is more uh, business logic, right? Make sure their service is functional. To me, it needs to be like elevated to the platform owner who owns like the architecture and the platform of um, of Kubernetes uh, to handle that. And the other advantage to handle this elevated way is you get consistency, right? So you got policy consistency among different services. Um, instead of if you delegate that to your service owner, service owner A may handle it different than service owner B, you know, you could get very inconsistent results that may not match your corporate uh, policy. Um, Lynn, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think from, we did some research on, uh, you know, Kubernetes uh, YAML files that we were able to scrape from the internet. We looked at about 200, almost 250,000 uh, YAML files to look at for configuration specifications. What are users actually doing um, in their environment? And we found that one of the most common misconfigurations that we found within these particular instances, and I think this has to do with the complexity that you're talking about, um, you know, is that we found that that organizations, or at least uh, the the developers of, of several, a lot of these uh, YAML files, were actually just running their containers under a root service. And I think that's probably simply because it's that's just the fastest way to get it done. I mean, with the the you know the advent, not even the advent, just the the time frame that that most developers need to work within in our environment is, you know, I mean, um, do they have time to build a secure operation do they do they have the understanding and the skills knowledge base of all of those systems to actually put together a secure container cluster or is it just um, i need to get this done out i need to get this out out the door we'll worry about security later and we'll just push it out the door um you know do you think that that the the complexity is adding to the insecurity of kubernetes or do you think that we can make kubernetes clusters you know like building a cluster with a proper mesh, like easily, easily you know, accessible by by uh, by the masses. Yeah, I, I really think that's the goal of the industry as overall, right? We want to build the right skeleton, I would say, for the infrastructure for application developers that has the right security policies in place. And then the platform owner or the operator, if you wish to call, who can control that security policy based on their uh, corporate requirement and their customer requirements. And then each service owner, I would think it's just filling in, you know, their services in there. And then their services will be fitting into the big picture of compliance and security. And 
Honestly, my goal is the ask for service owner should be really minimum. And I would maybe expect them to like propagate um, security headers, right? Like JW2 headers, you know, they got to propagate that so we can continue leverage that throughout the request. But I, I think the industry is trending towards like uh, zero trust security, where each of the requests are secured, um, not only on secure naming, but also on encryption, mutual TLS, and also um, the authorization on top of all that. I want to get to the first question from Jeffrey Bradley, who says, in the old days, we would host our secure portions behind a DMZ, and then have a small portion open to the public. I know Kate seems to allow a similar ability with defining the ingress control. With Kubernetes, have we quit isolating operations? Nathaniel? Um, you know, I mean, this, this, it's, it's a good... It's a good look because um, you know I, the 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 you know crusty you know exterior that DMZ hard shell and then the soft gooey interior of the uh, you know of a of a traditional network has kind of gone away, especially with um, you know Kubernetes you know being like you know you know app focused you know and and you know making that that interface between um, you know end users and the actual services they use um, making that. That boundary, that edge barrier, so much more, um, you know, it's thinner, you know, <laughs> to say to say it easily, you know, and isolating your applications, isolating our containers to just that one application being exposed to uh, those particular end users with, you know, the databases laying behind it, they they should be, you know, protected or isolated from uh, inside of that, you know, I guess you could call it a mini DMZ within a cluster. Um, I think that uh, it's really important to do that within the containers that we've seen or at least that we've researched, um, you know, that there there are certainly attempts to make that happen, um, but we still find a lot of organizations that are still just, you know, exposing or running services with root access, um, which is just, you know, don't do that. But, um, but that's common still. And I think that just there's complexity. I would like to hear uh, Lynn's idea on this with, um, you know, the, you know, are we isolating processes or are we isolating containers or is it just, you know, I'd like to hear, you know, what, what you think. Yeah, so um, I think we are going to continue on the trend to secure the edge. In fact, um, if you look at service mesh, typically right now, um, not only we secure the edge, the inlet, um, the traffic coming in edge, we also secure the outgoing edge, right? So that's what Kubernetes doesn't really do right now. So um, not only you control precisely what are the traffic coming, but also you don't really trust anything that's already in your network, um, even though you know the services might be within the VPC or private network, you just don't trust it's like, you still want to validate the identity like we were mentioning, you want to validate the key and search, make sure, you know, they can be um, really mutual uh, trusted. And then as your services needs to go 
out um, to the cluster, um, maybe consume some services on IBM Cloud or maybe Google Cloud, um, you want to kind of secure the outbound traffic as well. And it's highly recommended for you so that your uh, platform owner can set up a policy onto you. Hey, these are the services we trust as external services and these are the only services you can work with as service owner uh, within the particular kubernetes environment i'm so glad that you mentioned and you talked about you know restricting outbound access to services because i mean we see you know 80 to 90 percent of organizations don't even touch their outbound egress they only address their inbound you know um you know, network traffic for restrictions. So, so thank you for mentioning that. It's important to know what your services should be talking to and limiting them to only those specific lanes. I think that's very important for containers is it is an application and that's the only thing it should be doing. It should be doing nothing else other than that, that one service that it's, that it's providing. That should be the same for network traffic as well. So yeah, thank you. I was just going to emphasize the importance of the outbound. In fact, a good practice is you kind of run like your outbound uh, egress gateway on dedicated nodes, and then you can make sure all the traffic from your mesh or if it needs to go outbound, only go through the egress gateway first and then reach out to the outbound so that you have um, kind of a double security on that too. We have another question from Deepak Vish and Deepak asks, he actually has two questions. And so why don't we go for the first one on um, about identity standpoints. He says, from identity standpoint, service mesh works at the service level. How does it tie back to the user identity level? For instance, uh, you know, in these identity management environments. And it this is a question I have too about the varying types of identity management systems out there for Kubernetes, there really is no standard. And what happens if you're, you know, um, pulling in identity, um, you know, uh, pulling in uh, information from external sources that might be from a virtualized environment, for instance, that might not actually be part of the Kubernetes, um, um, not might may not be a Kubernetes artifact at all. So from a service mesh perspective, specifically for Istio, uh, we have authentication policies, right? So inside of authentication policies, there are two types. Uh, one is uh, request authentication, which is also called end user authentication. Um, the second type is uh, pure uh, peer authentication, which is typically referring to uh, mutual TIS used for service-to-service -service authentication, like you were uh, saying. So let me focus on the request uh, authentication. So request authentication is used for end-user authentication to, valid, to verify the credential attached to the request. So for instance, Istio can, in, uh, users can interact with Istio by enabling like request level authentication with a uh, JWT token. And then uh, Istio can help uh, validate when the request come in, uh, if the request has like a bell token, Istio can, ingress gateway of Istio can validate uh, their bell token uh, to, along with uh, the JWT credential to see, you know, it does the user have the right uh, credential. Um, 
So, so that's how you kind of be able to kind of tie um, the external um, identity management level into um, into a service mesh at the edge tier when the traffic comes in, and then as uh, and then optionally, if you choose, um, you could potentially propagate that request that has the identity information uh, throughout your microservices, so that it's still can double check as part of the RBAC rules. It can check, uh, you know, only if it's this principle, um, the traffic can be allowed. Great. So, Job, I wanted to ask you about the general tone from the conference on topics related to security. Uh, I know Spiffy Spire has been getting some attention. What topic security, you know, in kind of a, from a security perspective overall, are we seeing emerge at the conference this week? We're seeing a lot of new projects come along uh, uh, that are addressing this particular problem. Uh, in addition, like OPA, I remember when OPA was introduced three years ago out at uh, KubeCon, uh, there was, uh, it was, the interest was, was fantastic. I mean, it was, I think we had a uh, pancake podcast on that topic, uh, on that technology, and the, uh, uh, the crowd overfilled into the hallway, so it was so good. Now we have some other things happening. Uh, Iberno, a open source uh, Kubernetes native policy engine, this comes from Nomada, has also joined the CNCF. Um, and this will help uh, uh, bridge, uh, bridge Kubernetes policies uh, uh, to the developers and to the platform uh, developers by providing a set of uh, native tools. There's also the uh, Cert Manager project that comes, I think, from uh, 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 Jetstream, and that was a uh, certificate management controller, and certs are always uh, a headache to get up and running, uh, but this allows you to uh, issue uh, certificates from Let's Encrypt, uh, HashiCorp Vault, and others. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a, you know, security is, is a growing issue. Uh, I'm looking forward to Ian Coldwater's talk today uh, during the keynote. And she's going to delve into that uh, more. And just as a side, since you asked me about security, um, Dave Aronchek had a, a fantastic talk the other day about uh, uh, security in machine learning. And this is a totally new field. Uh, I'm looking, to, uh, looking forward to diving more into this. Uh, but basically, uh, you can, or an attacker, you say, can uh, get... Uh, I guess a rough description of how a particular model will work just by querying it, uh, you know, a, a few hundred times uh, and just seeing the responses. And this is both for uh, uh, image recognition, he had a great example for image recognition, and also for uh, uh, the this, this speech recognition as well. And the idea is uh, instead of spending millions of hours to build out models, you can just uh, take a model that's exposed to the uh, public internet or that you have access to, query it and come up with a rough approximation pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of talk about uh, security as Kubernetes moves uh, away from uh, uh, the prototypes and the skunk works and moves into actual production and security becomes a chief issue. Good stuff, Job. Good stuff. Now, Nathaniel, there is a question here from Ethan Kleiner. And Ethan asks, a question for Nathaniel, given the space of work he's in now, what's the most common no-no that's been seen for maintaining security in Kubernetes? 
privileged containers, something else you'd like to know so you can be sure to avoid it. Thank you, Ethan Kleiner. Yeah, most certainly. I think um, the biggest issues right now would um, surrounding uh, you know Kubernetes, just as we see as across the industry, is again I've mentioned it a couple times already, but not running your containers with um, you know root access, just really limiting um, the services that are allowed to surf, um, you know the service connections allowed to particular applications to particular containers, making sure that those are. Um, you know, not root, <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, and then, uh, you know, using, you know, if, if there's a way to, to validate those users that are actually pushing code, um, those services that are pushing code, whether using Jenkins or some sort of CI CD pipeline to, you know, push those systems up there. Um, you know, essentially we're, we're trying to control you know, the identity who has access to those systems, Lim, you know, uh, least privileges, you know, reducing the amount of, of rights that that particular container has to only specifically what it's supposed to be using. Um, and there there was a third one. Oh, and vulnerabilities, um, making sure that the, the applications themselves are in the latest patch, their latest release. So um, continually scanning your uh, container environment for vulnerabilities, misconfigurations, using some sort of uh, infrastructure as code, um, you know, scanner, um, you know, there, there are a couple that, that are out there for sure. There's several open source ones, uh, you know, Palo Alto has one within its Prisma cloud tool set. Um, so, you know, scan your system, make sure that the vulnerabilities are taken care of, make sure there's not any misconfigurations, make sure that they're not running under privileged accounts, um, you know, and, and limit what actions and rights they are allowed to do. Um, they shouldn't be doing anything other than what that one specific job they're supposed to be doing. Lynn, I, I have a question for you. And one question came in, I think, really quickly. How does Istio differ from uh, Linkerd? And that came from Rianta Das. There was another question, too. And how do the API management tools like Apigee work with the Istio service mesh? How, do, how does the identity work for the proxy endpoints in East-West connections? Wow, <laughs> three questions for me. Okay, great. So um, I would be, I could be biased <laughs> when I'm being asked yeah. how Istio differs from LinkedIn. So I will try to be very neutral. Um, the biggest difference, I would say, are in two folds, if you ask me. First is the proxy use, right? We both are service mesh, right? So uh, Istio use Envoy. Um, if you read the CNCF reports, um, I think come out three days ago um, on the survey, um, Envoy is continue to have a lot of momentum as a real popular proxy. So LinkedIn using their own uh, proxy written in Rust. So that would be the number one difference. Number two difference I would say um, is the community behind uh, Istio. Uh, well, Istio is a five-year project when Istio was incubated at uh, IBM and Google before Istio even exists. So that's like one-year one work plus Istio is about four years old now. Um, so there's uh, 300 company and 400 plus contributor are backing Istio projects. So when you evaluate an open source project, I, I think uh, a key criteria 
I personally look at is, you know, how diverse um, the contributors are, what are the key companies backing of the projects, because I think these are super important perspective. So um, please uh, maybe Google a little bit more on this topic. There's plenty of information, sure. but these are the two I would highlight. Okay. Um, and as far as, you know, back yeah, the IP API management, yeah, the and how it works with Istio, for instance. Yeah, so I would say API management tool uh, complement to a service mesh like Istio. Um, I remember in very early days uh, of Istio, we actually had an API management workgroup, and uh, we were trying to kind of fold some of the API management functionality into Istio. But then we realized um, it's more important for service mesh to be simple and focus on the key scenarios we want to solve, which is uh, connect, secure, and observe. So we fundamentally decided API management is out of the scope for service mesh like Istio. And we kind of disassembled that work group as the result of that. However, I mean, API management continue have a play in this space, right? Because people still wants to get like their pricing and uh, uh, data usage of the API. That's when you can potentially use API management in conjunction with service mesh. Um, as a researcher, I like to poke around at things and see what what uh, what other information I can possibly get out of a particular tool. Um, and I looked at Istio for a while, and and unfortunately, time constraints, you know, I had to go to a different aspect. One of the things I was looking at was the API um, connectivity for for Istio, and I'm curious. Um, you know, is there like an API monitor, you know, a querying monitor system that will, uh, you know, limit things, attempts of fuzzing? Um, is there a security product within Istio or a security feature that like limits the amount of APIs or, you know, the fuzzing capability of somebody doing something malicious to an Istio mesh? Yeah, so the, you could potentially, so Istio by itself is extensible, right? So we actually re-architect our extensibility. So it used to be a component called Mixer, where you can, as a user or a provider, you can write plugin for Mixer. For example, OPA has a Mixer adapter. So that's how they extend Istio to work with OPA. So the, when the request uh, comes into microservices, it can check with OPA to see, hey, is this request allowed? Um, um, now we are onto the trend instead. Uh, Istio 1.8 just went out yesterday, and we actually removed uh, the mixer component. The reason is uh, Envoy, uh, the WASA module of Envoy has been the new industry trend to allow users to do customizations for that sidecar proxy. So you could potentially write Envoy uh, either using Envoy filter or either using uh, WASM module to write like re-limiting. Uh, we, we do have a test case to have like, for instance, for re-limiting Envoy filter um, that allows to control the rate for a particular service. Thank you. That's awesome news. Awesome information.
Yeah, so the question is, how does the identity works for the proxy endpoints in East and West uh, connections? Right. So Istio uses like secure uh, naming uh, for each of the services. So as the service, um, as the pod for the services gets boot up uh, in the service mesh, so the sidecar proxy would um, would base on the secrets for the service account for that particular service, along with like the root certificate to get um, to issue a certificate signing request with Istio Control Plane. So as part of the signing request, it would get like uh, keys and certs uh, related for that service. Uh, so when the traffic are established between service A to service B for two services within the mesh, basically the sidecar proxy would um, trap all the incoming traffic as the traffic goes out from part A to part B. So the sidecar proxy would check um, is would send the keys and search to uh, to part B on the B side. The sidecar proxy is going to trap the incoming traffic, and it's going to check is does um, does A have the right identity? Does A have the right um, certificate? And uh, that is A even allowed to talk to B? Is there any RBAC rules in place? If all the things are checked to be successful, then the sidecar proxy on the service B side would forward the traffic to the the B um, the the B container that uh, service uh, B owner um, wrote. So that's how the traffic kind of works uh, for identity. So basically, we use uh, mutual TLS, the key answers, and also secure naming to make sure the traffic can be uh, allowed. Job, any questions that you'd like to ask that you're seeing from the audience? Uh, yeah, the questions are, are some of the questions are uh, pretty specific, but I, I think Andy had, uh, had, uh, 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 had addressed them pretty well. Something that I'm very curious about, we haven't really talked about OPA yet, the open policy uh, uh, authorization uh, is, um, I'm sorry, open policy agent. Uh, as I guess I would like to ask the uh, presenters, I mean, are they seeing this as the default uh, uh, a way of handling policies with uh, uh, with Kubernetes, or are there uh, are there concerns about OPA, or what's happening out there? I guess I'll I'll take off the this little section first. I mean, from my aspect, I have not seen anything like I haven't seen OPA being directly targeted by anything, so. Um, I can't really comment on to its further functionality outside of that. Yeah, I would say OPA is certainly very popular. Um, I know in the early days of Istio, there are people from the community challenging Istio. You know, why are you using Speedy for identity? Why are we not using OPA? Um, so the result of that discussion landed on the mixer adapter for OPA, right? So we kind of want to prove to the community, hey, you know, not only we support the default one, but also you can extend if OPA is your preferred choice uh, for authorization. So you could potentially extend um, a certain mesh like to support OPA. 
I want to ask a question from Joshua Bell, and I'm going to direct this one to you, and Nathaniel. What are some great tools for discovering issues with my I am setup? Yeah, perfect. Um, so, looking for your for your uh, you know identity and access management, I'm looking for tools that can scan those or at least look uh, look at your um, you know configuration. Um, if you're looking for like a uh, a native cloud security platform or CNSP, um, there are a number of them available. Um, there are specific tools. There's a lot of open source tools, specifically at GitHub. Um, there's um, I you know IAM scanners. There are you know config management templates, specifically within uh, Prisma Cloud, which is my uh, overarching uh, Palo Alto you know family that I'm in. Um, Prisma Cloud. As soon as you bring your cloud platform into the system, it is immediately scanning your um, your IAM um, configurations to look for misconfigurations and things things of that nature. There are other tools, um, you know. Since I am part of uh, Prisma Cloud and, and Palo Alto, that's just my first go-to because <laughs> they pay my bills. <laughs> but uh, um, there are a number of open-source tools that are out there to to assist with scanning. Um, and, and we can we can throw together a list at this some point. Um, I don't have anything just right off the top of my head. So what's the work that you're really excited about? What are you what are you seeing for you as you move forward in this space? Um, what is it that's really getting you excited, uh, Lynn? Yeah, so I would say, you know, I would emphasize security is hard. Um, in Istio, we spend a lot of time. We moved from microservices to monolithic. Uh, we stopped mounting service-specific keys and certs to the pod. We, um, we, we did a lot of change in our own control plane to make sure it's as secure as it could be. So I'm very excited, you know, in this uh, space, uh, as we continue collaborate on the service mesh, we can hopefully provide users uh, security policies for the platform owners that would save the service owner from worry too much about security identity, you know, access control. I'm really hoping, you know, we can through our technologies like service mesh, we can elevate that to a much higher level um, to the platform owner. Nathaniel. I mean, the, the cloud is 64% of our internet right now. Um, it's just getting bigger and bigger and it's getting more prevalent. So um, there are so many opportunities. There are so many things from a researcher to to look at and investigate and try to figure out if it's actually working securely and properly. So it's just a, it's an amazing field to be in. Way to go. Nice job, everyone. Thank you for participating in our pancake breakfast. I want to thank Palo Alto Networks. Another special round of applause. Thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. Joe, we appreciate your participation. We'll be back again soon. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud-native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud-native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi and hybrid cloud environments. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Analysts at the newstack.io forward slash podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. 
and see you next time. Thank you.